Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to do something team-specific, kind of late November, and for me, that team was the Clippers. So I had on Dan Wojcicki, who's never been on Real Jam Radio before, but I've known him for a few years, and he writes for the Orange County Register, on the Clippers, has since, I think, 2011. Talented guy, and we went in a lot of different directions on this team, how they are right now, whether it's sustainable, the bench, everything like that. For those of you who like timestamps, there will be timestamps available on this. And the conversation runs a little bit over an hour. I think it's like an hour 10. And this episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. You can go to blueapron.com slash realgm to get three meals for free, including free shipping. And you can also, and also Audible. Audible is a great audio service, audiobooks, things like that. You can go to www.audible.com slash try now to get a free audiobook and a free 30 day trial. So hopefully you check those out and listen to the episode. Thanks so much for coming on. Dude, happy to be here. This is my, my Real GM radio debut. It is, and kind of going through the league, and I like to do the first couple weeks of just kind of big picture stuff, and I like to then go into team stuff, and the first team I thought of was the Clippers, because while they did have that misstep against the Grizzlies, so far this year, they've been the best team in the league. Yeah, they're oddly interesting, and from a reporting sense, boring, all, all at the same time, which makes for them to be... You know, I think maybe like a weird level of interesting for me, you know, having this being my sixth season, I believe every Chris Paul year I've covered this team. And so, you know, I've kind of seen sort of the, the waves that they've uh, gone up and down on it. And, and this Danny, I'll be honest, I think this is the best team they've had. You know, we're 13 games into the season, which we're starting to creep into like, OK, like that's like that's an actual chunk of the year that matters a little over an eighth. So I think. That that's just, some of the stuff is starting to get in, into like interesting. Is this who they are? Yeah, I, I think that's certainly a fair way of putting it. And I've been fascinated by like one of the core decisions that Doc Rivers made this year was one that I genuinely didn't see coming, which is that they had the opening. The Clippers have basically four of their starters are locked in stone as long as they're <clears> still <throat> on the team. You know, CP, JJ Redick, Blake, and yes. DeAndre. And so then. There is this big question about the last spot. Jeff Green, you know, decided to go to Orlando for this for for whatever reason, so that opened it up. Mm-hmm. And choosing Luka Shard and Bamute, I mean, it's not the most important thing on this team. I mean, he's the fifth most important starter, but I do feel like that has helped change the tenor of the starting lineup, which has been so great. Yeah, I think it's done two things too, Danny. I, I mean, I think the obvious thing is it gives you a second, like, wildly versatile defender. Well, really, actually, in that group, I would say almost a fourth versatile defender because Blake Griffin has been terrific this year on that side of the ball. He's taken a really big step. Now you're, you've are you got the ability to switch almost everything, you know, with the exception being, you know, J.J. Redick, who's a, a very good team defender, but you wouldn't want him switching on to fours. You know, that would be bad. But I think, you know, Mbaba Mute is a guy who can guard one to four. Chris Paul has shown that despite his size, he's so crafty and quick that he can guard multiple positions. Same for DeAndre Jordan, same for Blake Griffin. And and that, I think, is why they've been one of the best defensive teams in the in, in the league. Luka Mute takes, you know, massive credit on that end. And then I think secondly, in like kind of the weird sort of evolution and where we've seen like kind of the continuity, I think, in this team matter is like, He's actually scored points for them. Yeah. Which, you know, last year was a, a total anything. he If he scored four points, like, you know, that's awesome. Like, we'll take it. You know, but this year he's been more active offensively, averaging six points a game, which 
isn't really a lot, uh, but he's doubled his scoring from last year. And he's getting his points off of cuts. He's getting his points off of corner threes. And just even like the willingness to shoot it and the willingness of the Clippers to kind of pass it to him there, I think is is added to his confidence and is added to the group's overall confidence in him. Especially the cutting, if you know, you're know you guarding the Clippers now, and as you should, you're going to be focused on the four other guys. You know, if you turn your head, he might make a really good baseline cut and, and, you know, score a layup. And he's done that, I'd say, maybe if not once a game, once every other game. And and those easy baskets, especially in the postseason, those always feel like backbreakers to me. They do. And Mbamute is finally getting to the point as somebody who's followed his whole career. He's getting to the (laughs) point where when you're when you're a good defender, but you're very limited offensively. And this is actually an issue that Rondé Hollis Jefferson is dealing with right now. You need to do Mm -hmm. one or two things well offensively to make yourself worth it, because otherwise it's going to be too easy to guard you. Teams are getting smarter coaches, you know, now with the army of assistant coaches, they can figure this stuff out and scouting and everything. And so, like, Tony Allen is what more was than is, but still was a great cutter. So, like, that's how yeah. Tony Allen did a lot of it. And, you know, he had, he had underrated ball handling. And so, for Luke, it, the cutting, I think, is the big one. But then the, the corner threes. And the point you made about being willing to take them is extremely important because that also changes the way you defend him. Because if a guy can Correct. make him every once in a while, then you don't you don't necess- you treat that more as like something you're willing to to give up. But when once they start to be more active with it, then whether it's the right decision or not, defenders go, "Oh crap, I should be there." Because if you if your guy gets an open three and takes it, even if that's the defensive scheme you're executing, you're still going to feel bad. You know, he's already taken more threes this year than I'm kind of screwing through his basketball reference page than he did in one, two, three, four, five, six, six separate seasons. So, you know, he's not been a willing shooter throughout his career. I mean, we're looking at, you know, he shot at 40, he shot 40, 40 times last year. You know, he shot 20 already this year. And I think that that matters. I don't know that you're going to want a playoff game where he shoots, you know, four or five times from the, the you know, the near corner. But. You know, if he can, you know, when the ball swings and he's wide open, if he can take and make one, uh, like we we're like, like I was saying, like those, I think in the playoffs feel like, you know, from what I've seen, and I saw it, I've seen it when the Clippers have played the Warriors with Andre Iguodala, who was like the guy when you funnel the ball to to a spot, and and that's and the, and then that guy executes and comes through. You start looking over at the bench, like thanks a lot, guys, like nice strategy. It really tests your resolve, I think, and. You know, to have another guy that you have to kind of sort of account for, I think makes a big difference for their offense. I really do. And when you consider that no matter what, that's always going to be the fifth option, in some ways it helps a lot. Because, you know, the, the, if you're going to concede it and there's a possibility of it going in, then basically it's you're giving them a worse option for their worst option. You know, like that sort of a mm-hmm. thing. That's always devastating. It's part of the reason why some of those five small lineups for various NBA teams can work so well is because they, they weaken that. Like you brought up Iguodala. He's a very good one with that. And yeah. And so, yeah, they're doing that. And then the other kind of like big broad stroke thing, we'll talk about the defense in a second, but the one that's been notable to me, though he's been out for a couple of days, is that their bench has played great. And particularly, yeah. the so the lineup with, uh, so it's Rivers, Felton, Wes Johnson, when he's healthy, he's the one who's been out for a few games. Then Mo Spates and, um, who am I missing? Jamal Crawford. Like, it's Jamal an, Crawford, It's yeah. an unusual lineup. But they've been outscoring opponents by 14 points per 100 possessions, which is ludicrous. Like, absolutely crazy for a bench. And 
there are kind of two, in my opinion, and you correct me if I'm wrong, there are kind of two elements to this. One is the offense is going to work. Like the offense with that group makes sense. But the defense seems like it's been better than you would expect. But really all that unit has to do is even be neutral considering how good the starters serve. have been. Yeah, and I think that their their numbers early were a little inflated. Like they played awesome the first um, seven games of the season. And maybe I'm wrong because then the West Johnson gets hurt and they've struggled a little bit since then. But I thought I could maybe start to see the signs of a little bit of a regression there. But they've got a lot of they've got a lot of options offensively. You know, we're we're talking on Sunday. You know, last night against the Bulls, fourth quarter, the biggest shots were made by Mo Spates and Jamal Crawford, and those guys. They were in kind of one of those games where you fall down early and you're kind of plugging away and it seems like you're always only able to get to five and then something weird happens and it's back to eight. And, you know, they had kind of had one of those games and, and the bench was the group that got over the hump. And I think offensively, it does make sense. Most Spates is so valuable to them offensively because as their center, being able to, to you know, be a competent and capable, capable three-point shooter, you know, shouts and shout-outs to the Warriors for kind of enabling that. Now – what Austin Rivers does best, what Raymond Felton does best, which is go to the basket, is open. Like, there are big driving lanes with that group. That's something Jamal Crawford does really well. And you've got a spacer in the corner in Wes Johnson, um, who is, you know, kind of sneakily like one of the better corner three-point shooters in the league. And you've got most spates, you know, above the break. And there's a lot of room to operate. Now, defensively, where it's been interesting, and, and I think when that group was going best, was it was just chaos. You know, they were switching one through four, and then most Bates is sliding over and taking two charges a game. You yeah. know, and, and that's how they're forcing turnovers. They're long and, and stuff like that. It's, you know, that group has not defended as well since um, West got hurt. Um, he could be back on Monday, um, which will be good because they've got a, a difficult stretch coming up. But, yeah, it's it's been, a, it's been a pleasant surprise. It's that weird mix of, you know, they add the two right veterans, and then they've got three other guys that know how to play together that were a part of that bench last year. And I think a lot of people kind of looked at, you know, the money they invested in those three players this offseason, you know, big contracts for Austin Rivers, Jamal Crawford, and, and, and you know, West getting the full mid-level. So that's what, Danny, like almost $30 million, I think, between those three guys this okay, season. Yeah. And so far, you know, maybe maybe you don't love those contracts two, three years from now, but but right now it, it's made sense. And, and I've always felt kind of like they had to pay those guys. The Where they were, they were, you know, they were capped out. They had no space, um, which ironically is um, – not related to most spates. <laughs> I realized that it sounded very similar. They had those guys' bird rights, and um, they were not in a position to negotiate with Austin Rivers. They were not in a position to negotiate with Jamal Crawford. Um, they needed the bodies, and I think those guys have, have played well. And then, obviously, you know, Spates and Felton have been terrific for them so far. It's sort of counterintuitive in a way. Like there was this idea with the with the Clippers of oh, it would be great to maximize flexibility in ca- in case Chris Paul or Blake Griffin or both leave in the summer of 2017. Like that's a, it's a possibility they're both going to be free agents. Sure, but in order to have a team good enough where they would consider staying, you needed to keep those guys ahead of time. And so you know mm-hmm. the, the fundamentals of this is usually. It doesn't end up like the Miami Heat in 2010 or to a lesser degree like the Warriors in 2016 where the timing works out and you, you get to make like the one big decision at the right time. You know, usually these things don't work. And I, I was more worried about the years over the dollars, as you said, for, for the guys that they signed this summer. It was not that horrendous 
as long as they retain the guys they're going to re- they want to retain. And so you have all this stuff running together. And what, what you talked about switching one to four, it gets into one of the more interesting ideas in terms of the way teams are conceiving of defense, which is that generally speaking, you would think like, oh, a lineup with a lot of kind of like, let's call them shaky or inconsistent defenders probably shouldn't switch that much. But then at a second glance, kind of at a deeper glance, you realize, well, if none of if all of them are a little bit shaky, switching if you switch reliably and have a consistent kind of theme with it mm-hmm. actually makes it easier for them because you're losing the seams that can cause the problem in the first place because that's the whole reason you switch is so you don't create those openings of guys having to get over and around screens. Yeah, and I think you know what what they've kind of put together this formula, right? So they've got a guy in Raymond Felton who <clears throat> they targeted um, very early this summer and kind of hoped. <laughs> That the market would forget him, and the reason why is, I mean, they like they like him as a penetrator and stuff like that. But but really, what they liked about him is, you know, the the word bulldog gets used a lot for him, and it's just that he just he plays really hard, like in your chest defense, and they like that out of a point guard. And I think the reason why they like that, and I've heard guys say this, is you know, if you're setting your defense and you're watching a guy pick up three quarters court and you know bust his tail you feel like you don't have a choice but to do the same. I think it is is kind of so he's been a good tone setter for them defensively. Austin Rivers is a is, is a willing defender. We can talk about how good he actually is. Um, but he wants to be good. And I think for a young player who's as athletic as Austin, that's that's a win. West Johnson is crazy long and for years his teams have been like, okay, this guy prototypical looking three and D guy. And it just hasn't always worked out, but I think he's more comfortable. We talked about spades drawing charges and, and even Jamal Crawford is a guy who at times is, he's never been a defensive, you know, strength for teams, but he, he's got pretty good instincts. He's got long arms and he kind of, he's able to kind of read passing lanes a little bit. And I think that's where that group has been successful when they played. Now they weren't as good, you know, when they used Brandon Bass and Paul Pierce here because, you know, they haven't been able to switch as much. And I think that kind of points to what you were saying is when you're forced to, you know, kind of, first of all, I think you're changing sort of your core decisions, um, you know, instead of going one through four, now you're going one through three. So you're, that's that split second of thought that's adding. And I think, you know, you can't do that. And then secondly, you're kind of, like you said, you're, you're kind of on your own a little bit more that you can, you can definitely, they can be a little exposed in that sense. The de- the defensive part of it makes sense. And then also offensively, there is this concept that, you know, on the first unit, you need to make sure that you have a kind of a base level of competence defensively. You know, that's a more important thing. But you're going to have skilled players. You can make a lot work offensively. On second units, you're always dealing with more misfit toys, guys. That's just the way it works. There aren't, you know, there aren't, if you, if a guy's good enough to start, he's going to start. And so what the Clippers have done is they've kind of gone the other way, which is a smart thing, and said, okay, we're going to have as many guys, two kind of two classifications. One is guys that can create offense, and the other one is guys that can take advantage of the offense that is created. So like most Bates is pretty clearly in the second camp. He doesn't do a lot creating for himself, except if he works on the offensive glass every once in a while. But you don't need him for that. You have Austin, you have Felton, you have Jamal for that. And so it mm-hmm. really it, it creates an ecosystem that works because no team is ever going to play three good perimeter defenders on the second unit. So somebody's going to have the opportunity to create, and usually those guys are all actually relatively good at creating for themselves and for others. I mean, I think of Jamal as being better at creating for himself, but he's had some nice passes this year too. Absolutely, and I think you know Jamal is. 
And that's why I think, you know, he has always been kind of the the logical, like, okay, how do we improve the Clippers? Well, let's trade Jamal Crawford. Has always been kind of the the person whose name I feel like has been out there most. I've always felt like he's more valuable to the Clippers than he is, you know, to anyone else because of that skill specifically is, especially kind of with that group, you know, if the first 18 seconds of offense, you know, offense in a possession, like don't work out. I don't, there, there aren't a ton of guys who would be willing to come off the bench who are better at that final six seconds than Jamal Crawford. It's a good point. And, and not only better, but willing, like, I've always felt like it's it's strange, but like his ability to go like one for six and not care about shot number seven is like it's it's like a skill almost. Um, you know, he he had a really bad shooting night last night and stepped into a, a huge three in the final two minutes, no hesitation whatsoever because he thinks he's going to make like and I, and I mean when I say thinks I mean this is legitimately he thinks he's making every shot whether it's from half court at the end of quarters whether it's a tightly contested three and he's getting fouled like or or, you know whether it's like a double clutch you know what you what you would generally consider to be a horrible shot in the paint like he thinks he's making all of them and and i think having that as a weapon late in the clock it it allows them to kind of play a different way early in the clock and and i think it's like you said it's the the ecosystem so far has worked And if any listeners are hungry for good food the way that Jamal Crawford is hungry for every shot, they should definitely give Blue Apron a chance. Blue Apron is a fantastic food delivery service that does a lot of different things at once. So for those of you who want to build confidence in the kitchen, I use the phrase cooking confidence a lot, and there's a very good reason for it because Blue Apron is the way that has fundamentally changed the way that I think about cooking. You learn with the deliveries that you get, you can learn new ways of cooking, you can learn new food to cook. I've talked before about seafood. I've gotten so much better at preparing it. And one of the things that was cool this week was a barbacoa lamb and beef taco. And so it was, you know, making the filling and getting all the side ingredients prepared and also honey nut squash, which is something I've cooked with before, but learned a little bit of a different way to cut it and, and to heat it. And that was that was a good experience. And for those of you who aren't as focused on the cooking end of it, it's also really good food and incredibly fresh ingredients. And that's in a lot of ways, that's the hallmark of Blue Apron is that it's making really good food with high quality ingredients and that meal and so many other are no exception had a really good cod recently and it's all fresh caught fish within the the guidelines set by the uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch and so if you're into that and they have options for all sorts of dining so if you if you're somebody who has a, a dietary restriction you can check that out if you have a preference in terms of eating or not eating a specific kind of like type of food you can certainly make that happen and for those of you who want to just try it I would highly recommend it. You just go to blueapron.com slash real GM and you can get three meals for free and that includes free shipping. So you've probably heard me talk about Blue Apron more than a few times on the show and why I like this so much is that you can try it for yourself. I fully expect that you will enjoy it as much as I do. I've been on it for months now and it's something I look forward to every single week. And if for whatever reason you're not in that group, no harm, no foul. You got three great meals, free shipping, everything like that. So again, it's blueapron.com slash real GM, R-E-A-L-G-M, like the site I write for and the podcast you're listening to right now. And you can see if you can build that cooking confidence, see if you can have some really good food and whatever whatever you want it to be, it can really fit in with that. So that I really do heavily encourage you to check it out. Again, one more time, blueapron.com slash real GM. Now back to the conversation with Dan Wookie. There was an important moment late in Saturday's game that really stuck out to me, which was that Jamal had a, I think it might have even been the three you were talking about, he had a good look at a three, and he missed it. And instead of sulking, instead of being disappointed, most Bates got the offensive rebound, 
and then just different play, but yeah, different that, play. yeah, I know exactly what you're but, talking about. And then mm-hmm. Jamal just cut to the basket, got that beautiful reverse layup, and it's like, yes, that's what you're supposed to do. Like when you miss a shot, I mean, uh, of course you can get back on defense depending on the structure of the play, but he didn't yeah. let that affect him. And that's the other part of shooters shoot that's important. Is one is the idea that you can't let you can't let a miss affect you. The idea of positive positive reinforcement is there, and negative reinforcement doesn't exist. Like that's very important. But then the other part is that any sort of problems that you have shouldn't stop you from doing your job, which is putting the ball in the bucket. Yeah, no, and, and that that was a massive play, and I think it, it sort of was. It was a very unclippery play in that sense because, like, that is a team that is trained not to offensive rebound. You know, yeah, <laughs> like, that's that true. is hundred percent like not. But m- m- most baits cannot be proudest. trained in ways like that. It is one of his it, greatest and most negative characteristics is that most baits is going to do what most baits is going to do, whatever the scheme. Yes, and, and you know he got in a he got a massive rebound there and then made a, a terrific pass and it, it was yeah it was just kind of a funky game and I think it was sort of their depth was sort of on display. Hey, so I want to I want to ask you about their defense overall and kind of so they're they're sitting at number two right now um, behind the Atlanta Hawks. Um, got off to an amazing start and then kind of had what, what I don't know, Doc Rivers and I have been arguing about this for a week or so in terms of like what is expected slippage based on their schedule. Um, they practiced once this season, Danny. Um, and that and that would be people. After... Do, it's, it's, it's amazing how little NBA teams practice. Like there's this idea of, oh, they're going to work through. They're going to get all this stuff and practice reps. But when you consider travel days and just rest because there's they play so many games. Teams sure. like one is probably anomalously low, but it. I think almost every team it's probably three or less. Yeah, so they they um, had two days off after. Well, they had two days off, I guess, at the start of the season, right? So they didn't open until Thursday. So I guess you could count those as practices if we want. But once they started playing games, they practiced on October 29th, and since then they haven't had two days off in between games, which is like the kind of the the. The Doc Rivers sort of like practice alarm, right? Is every other day they're not going to practice. Like, and they've played every other day since then, and they continue playing every other day until December sixth. So, like, to me, seeing kind of some defensive slippage over this stretch, like that makes sense. It seemingly always happens. You know, again, last night against the Bulls, Saturday night. You know, they give up 30 points in the first quarter, and it looks like it's going to be kind of a game where they're just going to have to to outgun the Bulls and. I think they allowed 19 in the second quarter, 18 in the fourth, 25-ish in the third, and, and you know hold them under 100 points, maybe right the ship a little bit defensively. I guess when I, what I'm saying is when I look at the evidence, I don't see any reason why they can't be a top two or three defense this year, provided they stay healthy. I mean, they were a really good defense last year. They were fourth. And I th- like, and, that's not, that's they- not bad. And, and dude, I agree with you. And there, there are a couple different things that I, I like. I always like to look at facets of it. I think that's the most fair way mm-hmm. to do it. And so what's sustainable and what isn't. So their starting five defense, broadly speaking, is close to sustainable. I mean, right now they're, they're, the main five is, is allowing 90 points per 100 possessions. That's probably a little a little stronger than you'd expect. But the general scope of it of like, yeah, that group should be good defensively. And one of the big differences, we talked about this a little bit before, is Blake Griffin. Griffin mm-hmm. is, they're using him better. And he's engaging more on that end than he has before. And what what has been very satisfying to me is the concept that 
players are generally not good at defense or bad at defense. They're good at specific parts and bad at specific parts. And it's just that what, what they get the opportunity to do. And like Blake is not the best help defender. He's not the best rim protector. So going to a, a, a heavier switch system puts him in better positions to, to succeed than what they were doing before. And playing him with Luke Richard and Bob Mute, who is another bigger guy who can, you know, defend one to four, you you don't have that same slippage. And with Chris Paul, it's kind of like the reverse Akeem Olajuwon. So there was a story, I think Kenny Smith tells us about how on a, Akeem would say, you know, I can get your guy, I think it was for four seconds on a switch and then get back. And like, so for Chris, yeah, you probably wouldn't want him ISO, you wouldn't want him defending... Well, I'm, I don't know why I'm thinking of a Clipper, but Blake Griffin on an ISO for like 10 seconds. Yeah. You probably wouldn't want that. That's a, bad, that's a bad thing unless he strips him, which he certainly could do. But, you know, for a couple seconds while you figure out how you're going to handle it, that's fine. And, if, yeah. if, and, and that mentality ties in because then if you, if you go in that direction, then you can hold it for a couple seconds. And then when, if you're going to react to that, let's say with a double... That requires everybody else being active and engaged because you're basically going to have to work to not create an open look for someone else. And the Clippers you know, have done a much better job of that. Yeah, I think, you know, and this is, I think, a little more abstract, too. I wrote about this earlier in the year. Uh, one of the things that kind of came up when I would talk to players about the defense, obviously, um, the fact that they're in year two of doing kind of, they made a pretty big pick and roll tweak um, last year in the offseason where, Instead of hedging and, and, and blitzing, um, they let their bigs drop. And the no, the idea was simple. It was just to keep DeAndre Jordan closer to the basket, put you in help a little bit less. Um, for you know, you, they liked their guard, so it was like, okay, get through screens. And um, you know, you could run it. It served a lot of purposes for them. They wanted to defend the three point line better. So you know, if you trail, you can push them into the mid range more and stuff like that. So this was kind of their their logic behind it. And for the first month last year, they were terrible. Really, really bad. Uh, giving up wide open layups, glaring at each other, like had no idea what they were doing. And right around the time and Bob Mute comes in the lineup, they kind of start to figure it out. And then I, so I, again, I, I kind of view, you know, this year as sort of a continuation of that defensively. And one of the interesting things that they've talked about is being able to kind of play off of one another and not have to always call screen switches and stuff, just like kind of knowing. Right. And normally when people talk about that type of stuff, like continuity, I think for me, in my mind, I imagine like the Spurs offense. Right. It's sort of like where everybody knows where everybody is. And, you know, you drive in the paint. It doesn't matter if there's six arms blocking all passing lanes like, you know, where Mono Ginobili is going to slide. And so you can always make that pass. So, you know, where Danny Green's spotting up. I think the Clippers have they've talked about it like they feel like they're kind of entering that zone defensively where it's like if they get caught on a double. Or if they feel like they want a double, they have like the supreme confidence that even if it's not something they've talked about, that they know where the next man's going to come, where the help is, and then where they need to recover to. And, and I think that has been a big difference in kind of like last year, I think they were good in system. I think this year they've kind of added that next layer of, you know, Dave Yeager said it for the game in Sacramento. He's like, they just do everything to the nth degree that they did three years ago. It's, and it's really and I, interesting. And, yeah. And, and and that's it, how I feel about them defensively. This yeah. Year. And, and it ties in. So there the, some like there's this this way that it kind of flies in the face of conventional wisdom with the idea that communication is in, extremely important on defense. But I think what you're getting at is something entirely different. And it's the idea of instinct versus reaction. So well, and yeah, and they do talk too. Yeah. I mean, like, absolutely. Their communication is great. But, but I do that think that it's to. just sort of like, yeah, it's like looks. 
you know what I mean? It's the other ways you can communicate too. And it's sort of like you communicate by where your body is. And if you see DeAndre Jordan standing in a specific place, if you're Blake Griffin, you know, you know where you, that DJ looks like he's going to come over and try to block a shot. So you know that you need to come in and slide and protect the weak side of the, uh, you know, of the, of the paint to keep an offensive rebound and, and or, or, or a dump off or something like that. It's little things like that that I think where they've taken, you know, their biggest steps. Now, that stuff gets stress test, you know, like crazy, you know, in bigger games and as the season goes on. And I think it'll be interesting to see if, you know, when the stakes get higher, you know, coaches call it like, you know, and Doc Rivers says this all the time. It's like holding on to your trust. You would hope that that's when you would rely on it most, but I think sometimes circumstances can change that, and and to me that'll be their challenge. It will be. It, it'll definitely be because you get into situations in the playoffs where every every defense, every offense has weaknesses, and just mm-hmm. by the the structure of a playoff format, it is far more likely that you will end up facing that team in a playoff series, the team that has that <laughs> personnel, because those are the teams that survive. You know, like that. That's kind yeah. of the thing. Like there was. Uh, I, I was trying to remember like there was I, which team it was. It was one of the teams that was higher end in defense. They're like, oh well, they have trouble with big, talented wing scores. I was like, oh, I wonder who what teams in the league have big, talented wing scores. It's like, oh yeah, three of the top four teams in the league do. And so, yeah. so you get into those kind of circumstances. And so, no matter what, that is going to be the case. But you have to hope that you can use the remaining time to get ready for that. And what I wanted to go with with the se- kind of the second part of that with the idea of the analysis is that I do think there will be some defensive slippage with their bench. Not a ton, but some just because being on this like real high end with that West Johnson group is that just yeah. feels unlikely. But I mean, I'm noting that they were fourth last year. Like, I, I think that they could certainly be top three. And I would say overall, that's changed a little bit in the last couple of days, but they, I think they can be better offensively than they've been. And Yeah, and they, so, they're surging on that side of the ball right now, but I, I agree with you. I think, I mean, to me, that's where their ceiling still, gosh, like their ceiling's huge there. It is. And, you know, they, two years ago, they were the best offensive team in the league. Last year, I know they weren't first because the Warriors were, but I think they were second or third. And they, as long as they stay healthy, they can they were actually They were actually worse last year. They were, oh, well, they were Blake, like six. Yeah, Blake was out, but they were, they were actually a better defensive team than they were an offensive team last year, which makes sense because of no Blake Griffin. But, yeah, I mean, I think first or second in the league certainly seems plausible sure. for them offensively. And so, you know, the Clippers. It always felt like they had one. One of the things I think I mentioned this when I was talking with Ben Golliver last week is that what's been personally satisfying for me is that I get haunted, and Oklahoma City is probably a good example of this. When a team never reaches their potential, and while yeah. it's completely too early to like make these big pronouncements, the Clippers are on the path to just us knowing how good they could be. And, and luckily for yeah. them, nothing weird has ever happened in their franchise to get in the way of them reaching <laughs> there. Not like, not is, like they're I mean, buried, on, not like not like they play over an ancient burial ground or anything like that. Yeah, nothing weird has ever happened in this franchise to stop that potential from being reached. No, but I mean, I think that the, I think you're right, and I think like you know, and that to me has probably ultimately been the most um, surprising isn't the right word, but like I and, and satisfying is not it either but just kind of affirming thing about thinking they're going to be good this year. We're seeing that instead of being the team that kind of started the, the season sulking about how they got bounced from last year's playoffs, kind of, you know, I, I've always kind of compared them to like a marathon runner, right? And every year they're doing great for the first like 25 miles and then like their entire body cramps up and they can't finish, right? Like their entire body just like completely breaks down. 
and they have to stop or, or you know something stops them and normally then i w- after eventually when you do that so many times like it's hard to get excited about the first 25 miles when you run next year you know because you know the challenges between 25 and 26.2 and i think largely especially the last two years that's been kind they they've had kind of a general malaise early in the season because of that because you know the regular season doesn't really matter to them their problems haven't been in the regular season their problems have been in the playoffs let's get back to the playoffs that's what we want to fix and like this year at least you know kind of from a mentality standpoint which is like harder to quantify i mean maybe it's just as simple as i'm playing harder but they just seem like they care more they want to win more early and they want to be a better team now because they think it'll make them a better team come the playoffs it's sort of like you know they've done it the other way so many times it's like all right let's try it a different way let's let's start holding ourselves crazy accountable now and make this an 82 game process to the playoffs where instead of you know making it a, a two and a half month thing where we kind of turn it on you know right before the all-star break yeah that gets into something that i wanted to talk with you about which is kind of maybe not as much your psyche but the fan psyche in terms of the way to treat the regular season because it's been super strange to cover a team this year with the warriors where it doesn't feel like team in particular more so than the fans really care about what happens in the regular season you know like it is mm-hmm. all determined by 14 potentially games in May and June. Like that's really for the Warriors what it's about. And I wanted to know, is it the same for the Clippers or is it like maybe let's say like 25%, 75%? Well, I mean, I, I think honestly, you know, I still feel like the pit, like sodium pentothal, like total truth telling. I think that they would, I mean, they know that they're going to be judged by the playoffs. If they win 62 games and get bounced in the first round, I think they know what people are going to say, you know, that, oh, this isn't going to work, you know, and, and kind of the same refrain that's been there after every other postseason and you know and this year with you know real decisions to be made about you know chris paul jj reddick blake griffin that kind of discussion could could have an impact on things it really could and you know people could start thinking well maybe maybe you know you start to plant that seed a little bit more i think they know that but i i feel like the decision was to be better then we need to be better now and it was sort of JJ talked about this the other day, and it was, you know, when Steve Ballmer spoke to the team very early in training camp, he talked, uh, kind of gave them, you know, a Ballmer-esque motivational speech, talked about, I think it was like the tenets of greatness. And one of them was like, you have to be great every day, like no bad days. And um, obviously over the course of an NBA season, you're going to have bad days. But the goal is, and, and, and they've spoken about this quite, quite freely, is, you know, when we're up 15, it's not to stay up 15, it's to go up 30 to go up 25 and to play that way. And I think the Warriors are a great example of a team that did that, at least in a mentality last year. Now we can discuss whether or not that caught up with them. I don't believe it did ultimately. I don't, um, I don't either, except for maybe see there was, there was an interesting thing. Like there were two, there were two parts of it that I think were contributing factors to what happened, which is the the cumulative physical fatigue was certainly something Mm -hmm. that was worth considering, you know, like that they pushed so hard to the end. I'm not going to say like that's what caused Monty Eunice to slip on the floor and everything like ha- happened with that. It's just that it's, yeah. it's risk factors, you know, like if you want to think about it in terms of like a heart attack or whatever else, you know, it, it made things sure. harder. It didn't, it isn't what, it isn't what killed them, but it certainly did it. And I think the mental fatigue is underrated in that is that when you make every game your Super Bowl and you care as much as they did, it's just a lot to take on. You know, it's, it's a lot to, to deal with. And it's been so fundamentally different this year. And I, I think it might be bothering the members of the Warriors this year that kind of still treat every game that way. The rest yeah. of the team is a little bit floaty. But at the same point, 
they understand now because there's no better way of understanding the importance of winning a championship than doing everything but winning a championship and feeling empty inside. And that is like, I I remember at the, uh, I guess they called it the exit interviews afterwards. Like granted it was the day after they lost, but Steph, Clay, Draymond, they all just felt like they looked defeated is, is too, too basic a word for it. They just looked kind of like broken. Dude, I've seen it five times. Well, really, realistically, three. You know, I think that the three years where the Clippers felt like, okay, like this, this can be for us. Was you know, we go back to Doc's first season. They get through the series with the Warriors, the Sterling series, just a weird, a weird playoff, so emotional. And they win a game in Oklahoma City to start that, and they're down there, a minute and a half away from being up three-one, and just like, like it just crumbles. You know, like weird Chris Paul decisions. You know, maybe a bad Tony Brothers call, and the next thing you know, you know now, <laughs> now you're down and you're playing for. I'm sorry, not not to go up three one. I was to go up three two with, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, game six in, in Los Angeles, and instead you're down, and then they just kind of reach a boiling point. And like seeing that team after that, like they felt cheated. They felt cheated by that moment. They felt cheated by Donald Sterling. Um, a year later, uh, you know, now you're up three one, and you're up what is it 22 points or something like that against the Houston Rockets I forget it was something like and, that and yeah and and um Josh Smith plays the best quarter of his career Corey Brewer plays one of the best quarters of his career and you lose and like there's just no way they were going to win games they were wiped defeated you know what I mean again empty and like seeing that team after that it was like it was unbelievable and then I was in the locker room in Portland after you know that one of the weirdest days probably in that team's history in which you know, you mentioned the, the the Curry injury. You know, that was the day before, and so the window, like it felt like maybe this is our time. You know, maybe this is the the, the good luck we needed. The door was open. Um, you know, they're up two one in the series. Felt still felt pretty good about everything, and Steph Curry gets injured. And I think eight hours later, Chris Paul has broken his hand, and Blake Griffin's quad has exploded again. <laughs> and you know, and and being in that locker room after that game guys crying you know i know like the series was gonna go on but it, it was over it was over. and you could see yeah you could see like you put so much into it and when you don't get what you want or what you think you're you're going to get or what you th- even in the clipper sense what you think you're gonna have a chance to play for it feels all like a waste and I, and I, that makes total sense to me and I, I still think that that's their mentality what's interesting to me danny is kind of that these two teams that have sort of been linked for the last half decade in some ways I think kind of their ascent has been at the same time, and the you know the Warriors have certainly you know rocketed past the Clippers. I, I think that they're kind of having opposite approaches to this regular season, doing things the way that the other team used to do them is kind of interesting. <laughs> it me. is, and and I think I think back to that Rocket series a fair amount, and part of it is also because they had already beaten the Spurs. Yes, they had this great thing. That was the hump. That was yeah. the hump, supposedly, that they cleared. It's like, they beat the Spurs, they played well, I mean, there was the weird stuff about Pop sitting Kawhi in Game 7, but you you beat the team that's there, you, they, the Spurs were at at least close to full strength, I think they were pretty much full strength, and mm-hmm. that was a series, was that a series where, no, did Chris Paul get hurt in that one, or was it only against the Rockets? No, he got hurt in Game 7, and then came back out and hit the game winner that's over right. Duncan. That's right, yeah, and so, yeah. so they have so they have CP, and then that Rockets team that really, I don't think anybody took them seriously. Seriously, you know, so it's like you have that Rockets team 
that, you know, they were the second best team in the West in terms of record, but the reason they got there was because the Spurs blew the last game of the year and, like, they would have been third and, and all that kind of stuff. And then mm-hmm. the Clippers just fall apart. And I was just sitting there like, like I, I actually got a little bit incredulous because I'm like, this is your chance, guys. This was your possibility. And I know they knew the same thing. You know, like, that was it, it happens with that. And when your expectations are so high... And it's strange for the Clippers also because they have this. This is a difference from them and the Warriors, which is like there's this whole thing about Chris Paul never reaching the conference finals. However, I yeah. would argue that depending on the context, them just making the conference finals might not even be enough. So they could get over this kind of like historical hump, but that still might not be enough to make them happy. No, it won't. I can, I 100%, I can tell you it won't. Um, I think that. I think they would tell you to to a person that that's like a, a, a BS goal. Like the conference finals isn't like whatever, you know. Like that's that's like something we've created, you know. Like Chris Paul doesn't care about not going to the conference finals; he cares about not winning a title. Same goes for Blake Griffin. I think that's, you know, for Doc Rivers. I think if they lost in the conference finals and played well and lost, they would still they'd be crushed, you know. And, and it wouldn't. Uh, I, I don't think they they're in the position for like moral victories but, but at this I think point. if they like, lost is, in, the, in the NBA finals I think they would be disappointed but that would be different probably I mean I, I think um, it'd be a different kind of disappointment certainly yeah but and that's one of the things that's interesting kind of about them that I've noticed is like sort of like these artificial kind of like you know checkpoints so after that Spurs series and I think uh, they would the, some of the guys would tell you this like they were a little high on themselves like they were kind of acted like, you know, like we arrived. One of the things that, you know, someone in the organization had done that series was kind of pulled out like the ESPN, like expert picks. Right. And I think everybody but one person had picked um, the Spurs in that series. And because and, and all their beat writers, myself included, picked the Spurs because they're the Spurs. It wasn't like intended as a disrespectful act. But, you know, after the Clippers had won that won that series, there would be staff members that would come up to me and be like, I thought you were with us. Like there was like they were smug. There was a certain smugness after that. And I think I don't know that that cost them anything, but I do think that, you know, obviously in game six, like they didn't keep the foot on the gas in that series. Like they throwing out all sorts of cliches, mixing all sorts of metaphors instead of hanging on to the rope in that game. Like they just let it slide through their hands and slide through their hands until they weren't holding on to anything. And maybe that had something to do with it. So, you know, I wonder if they get to a conference finals, it does that sort of, you know, like because everybody's going to say, "Well, you've done it. Congratulations." Will they be? Will they be able to say, "No, we haven't done anything yet"? And will they still play that way? I, I don't know. Well, they're it, they're fascinating in that sense. They are, and it's also the Rocket series gives me pause because of the idea of losing to what I felt was an inferior team, but also the idea of not facing like your destiny in that sense of like if they had lost, let's say, to the Warriors or whatever in that in that playoff sure. run, whatever, whether that been the seeds were different, it was in the second round or whatever, you know, like I feel like in some ways that would have been a more acceptable loss, even though they hate the Warriors, and maybe they would have gotten up more for that series so they wouldn't have let the rope slip. Like, I think that's certainly possible. But mm-hmm. it's so they're, they're in this place, and there have been teams in other, in other sports that have been like this. There have been teams in the NBA where it's like, it feels like they've lost so many different ways. Like that last yeah. year, last year was the bad luck. You know, it's like, you know, just maybe it was outside of your control. It was just unfortunate that it happened. Then the opposite happened the year before where it was like you left the door open and the other team stormed through it. And then the year before it was like, you know, maybe you got beat by, by a, a I'm not sure they were a superior team, but, but got beat by a good team. You know, like you, like yeah. you, it was contributory negligence, but you know, it was that sort of thing. And 
I, I don't know how that makes me feel because because it's 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 a different thing you know it's not like you got you're running up against the wall every time and it's just like you know when you're losing you're losing to a better team or something like that it's just all different but I don't think they're cursed or anything like that but you, you get into you get into all the stuff and but the most well I'll imp- say it I, I mean Danny I'll say it they're like we don't need, maybe they're not mental like maybe they haven't been mentally strong enough in these situations I, I think in the Rocket series that's true because that's the you, only you know. the, the only way you lose that kind of a series considering the lead they had in that in that game six is by losing it yourself I, it, it was that, such a weird game one of the weirdest things that happened in that game and I think. You know, we th- like this is how I think curse, like quote unquote curses, can sometimes perpetuate. Is that I think they would they were up like Josh Smith like made like you know the Rockets went on like a six zero run or something right and made like back to back threes. It's early in the fourth quarter and it was like they were down twenty in that arena. It was amazing how quickly like the crowd recognized what was about to happen. Yeah. You know because they've been conditioned for it and, and it was it was nuts. It was like a weird it was like a weird feeling how quickly everybody knew that like they were going to lose it was um, that it went from like celebratory to not. And I mean, it, it, it was remarkable. It was very different, but those swings at Oracle during game seven of the finals were crazy too, because like yeah. there was, there were these moments where it's like, Oh God, we're going to lose. And then it's like, no, nah, we're fine. And then when Kyrie hits the shots, like, wait, are we fine? And then, and then it all, yeah. went, it all went downhill so fast at that very in the very last 30 seconds it's like it was crazy like you get into those and i mean the crowd dynamics you know the players do they they like to say you know oh we we do what we do our thing and all that but you know it's a feeling in the arena that you can certainly that you can get mm-hmm. and with the clippers yeah, it's hard to stay calm when there's 20,000 people around you panicking right and it's also like when, especially when that feeds your own stuff, and like that's kind of where I've gotten to with the Clippers is the idea of like maybe it doesn't affect them that much, but that little voice of doubt is really hard to scrape out when you don't have a reason to. And I wonder if maybe that's where, and I know that they don't think like this, but since we're having this conversation, and I've never actually even thought about this, maybe that's where a, a really strong, dominant regular season makes sense. I grew up in Chicago. I'm not a Cubs fan. Um, I'm a White Sox fan. And, you know, for years, I've seen the Cubs, and I even saw it this year, when something goes wrong in the playoffs, people freak out, okay? Because it's something always goes wrong. But I think one thing that, like, the smart Cub fans I know, like all two of them, like hung on to was like, like, no, we were the best team in baseball all year. Like, we're going to be hard to beat. <laughs> like, we're really, really good. And I think that team even hung on to that, that it was sort of like, don't worry, just keep doing what we do. We're going to score a couple of runs here and we'll be fine. And ultimately, you know, obviously they win a series um, in seven games. And I think being able to hold on to the fact that they were the team that was good for 162 games, I think that matters in that sense. And I think it matters for your fan base. And I think um, subconsciously it matters to, to your players and, and maybe that's something that the Clippers, if they have this kind of regular season that they're on track to have, maybe that's something that they have in those moments that they've never had before. Want to take a quick moment to tell you about Audible. And it's also that backlog of that they will probably have played a good game at minimum against every other team in the league. You know, it's it's the idea of kind of mm-hmm. muscle memory that you've 
oh, we've beaten these guys. Oh, we've done this. We're fine. You know, like even even that is can be very useful to give you confidence. I mean, that's I think that's also a part of the idea of why it generally takes teams a few times to really break through is because, you know, you need to get that positive experience. But you can do get a little bit of that in the regular season. But where I wanted to pivot this to, because I feel like it would be it would be impro- it would be improper to do this podcast without these questions, even though I'm not sure how much you okay. enjoy them, is looking at 2017. And so really yeah. to me, this feels like th- these are threshold questions because it's not because we can't answer it in anything other than that. But it's basically, is there a level of success or anything like that that you think is is like the minimum level or, you know, like a guarantee to keep Chris, to keep Blake, to keep JJ Redick around? Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, I, I think, and this sounds crazy, I think the right kind of first-round playoff loss doesn't disqualify them from bringing everybody back. I agree with you. You know what I mean? I, I, I think, first of all, I think that weirdly, and this might be how athletes are conditioned, um, you know, I have talked to Jamal Crawford about this, who is a guy who could have left this summer and, and gone and done something else if he'd wanted, is that it's sort of like after you've been through all this stuff, it's like, and Reddick talks about this too all the time, is like, you know, like, this is the group you want to break through with. You want to see this through because otherwise, like, what was the point of, you know, sitting in a locker room wondering why Donald Sterling said what he said? What, what was the point of, you know, looking at your yourself after you blew, uh, you know, a 3-1 lead of the Rockets? Like, what was the point of all of this? You know what I mean? It, it's it's fruitless if, if, like, if you decide that, you know what, forget this. Like, this, what, the last five years weren't worth it. I'm going to go play in New York. I think that um, enough of those guys feel that way. And then on top of it, I, I, I just think like when I look at kind of the situation is guys like L.A. is a destination. There are massive offers that can be had by everybody involved, and they've got an owner who's willing to pay it. Simple as that. And it's like a great place to live if you're super rich. It's you a know? nice, it's a nice I, place to live otherwise, too. But Yeah, it, I, I would imagine. I don't know what it's like to live here being super rich, but I would assume that it's even better. Based on entourage, you know? I think it sounds pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. As somebody you who lived I mean? in L.A. when I was distinctly not super rich, I, it, it, that part of it. But, but also, I, there are a couple things that you hit on. The money part is important, that they have full bird rights on all these guys and that Balmer yes. will pay what they need. So for me, the most likely way that any one of them leaves, and my feeling, and you would know this far better than I, is that Chris Paul is the most likely, would be if he feels like we can't reach that point. And so that's what would cause it. And I don't yeah. think that necessarily has to be in the first round or the second round. It's just whatever creates that feeling. And I think that's kind of what what might have led Kevin Durant to the Warriors is the idea of maybe our best isn't good enough. And while I could I would argue that the Western Conference Finals was probably not a that might not be a fair reaction to what happened. There are Correct. certainly outcomes for the Clippers that could get could get Chris Paul there. And what is most interesting yeah. about him is well okay let's say let's say he even if it's not like his firmly held conviction because if it's his firmly held conviction he should go if it's let's say a mix is will he find somewhere that that's better that's closer because you know the banana boat thing is a possibility maybe 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 at least sure. a little bit but they're really at least as far as i'm seeing like the big strokes of what this of what the summer can be you know like i'm not i don't see that opportunity of like oh if this team maybe the celtics like if they add chris paul they're a better team than the clippers are right now like maybe the celtics are the only one and there's a lot of complications in terms of dealing with that and maybe that's what gives the clippers 
fans a little bit of solace if this doesn't go well is the lack of a clear cut like that was what was kind of the worst case scenario for Oklahoma City is oh crap there's another team out there that can easily say if we get you we're better yeah. than your old team I'm not sure that like we knew yeah we're like I mean we heard that one in December that that was a possibility right and yep. people some people laughed that off but that was established pretty early one of the things that I wonder about with with Chris and this is just to someone who knows him uh well that's not true who's been around him enough right and kind of i think know some of the things that are most important to him our family is like crazy high on his list right like i think he has friends but really he has family you know a brother who's his closest confidant you know his parents are always around his kids are 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 constant fixtures in the locker room and stuff like that And, and i think again if does chris paul at this at what uh, 32 or 31 or whatever decide that you know what i'm gonna pull everybody up for four years and we're gonna go live in boston i don't know and i I, like it it wouldn't seem to fit kind of what he's built for himself here in terms of like a life and um a rhythm and stuff like that now weirdly if like charlotte was like crazy competitive like i would almost feel like they would have a better chance you know yeah, that that's an, like, inter- that's an interesting one yeah because you know what i mean you get, in, you get into that so I'll, I like wanna... he loves home and he loves north carolina and like you know like I, 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 he's never expressed an interest he's never expressed an interest of playing at home but i i think just based on you know things like whether it's christmas or thanksgiving that you know he flies his entire family out to his house and like he hosts because he has to have his family around like that is such like an important thing to him I feel like L.A., like they've they've settled into a rhythm here. But like that's not going to I'm not saying that should that people should that I'm saying he's absolutely saying. I just think he's happy with that part of his life. It feels that way from what I understand. The idea that it takes a lot to leave is definitely true. And Mm -hmm. I want to tell a, a really short Chris Paul story because I think this illustrates the other part of him that I find so compelling, which is. Is it about him cheating on his eye tests? No. It is okay. so okay. So I think it was it was either my first or second year covering the league. So it was probably in 2010. I'm not completely sure. The Warriors were abysmal, and mm-hmm. the, he was on the Hornets then. And the uh, and so the game it was a game against the Warriors. It was close late, and Paul won the game because he got a steal on Monte Ellis on the last play of the game. I think it was one of those the Clipper or sorry the Hornets were up one, and they got the steal, so the game was over. I ended up going into their locker room, and after the game, somebody basically said, like, how did that play happen? And Chris said, well, I watch a lot of the Warriors on League Pass, and I, I know that when Monte does that spin move, he always has the ball in a very specific place, so I just put my hand there and stole it. And so basically, yeah. Chris Paul, was such a he's such a basketball nerd that he was watching an abysmal Warriors team. Like, this, the Warriors, I think that year they won, like, 20 games. He watched that team for whatever reason, while living while living in New Orleans. This wasn't like he was living on the West Coast. He was living in New Orleans enough that he knew where Monte kept the ball in his spin move and it won his team a game. So what that ties in with is that he has a very good sense of basketball in general, but also the idea of who is good and who isn't. And so I think that if he makes the move, it's going to be purely, like, in terms of the basketball part of it, he'll make the right decision. Like, he's going to yeah. know, like... If so, let's say I, I think the reason why I think it's Boston is because they can put together the highest ceiling of any of these teams. What about San Antonio? Maybe, but I, I don't think he, it would probably involve. I think it would involve them moving Lamarcus 
because I think he would just see that ecosystem is not working. But there's a way you could do mm-hmm. it, and I think he'd love to play for Pop just for the experience. But, but I, I they don't have a rim protector. One of, one of the of things I wanted stuff. to point out, yeah, and, and just to kind of go back to like the life stuff, you know, a lot of people and I would say that it doesn't matter. Like if you love LA, you, it's the NBA. You can still live in LA. Like NBA players do this all the time, right? Is like you have like your off season home, and that's where you live. It just doesn't seem like Chris would be the kind of person that would say to his kids, like, you go to school in L.A. and I'll commute and we'll figure it out. No, I don't think he'd do like, that. that doesn't see that doesn't seem like something he would do. But I, I don't know. I, I, it's it's interesting. And, and, you know, when you factor in all of that stuff and you factor in kind of that his decision is tied to two other decisions and that's all tied maybe to how they play like. 2017 is a giant question mark and maybe that's maybe maybe we're overthinking this maybe that's part of the reason why they're off to such a good start is the awareness of that i I think it is because there is there is this idea not only in terms of the sense of urgency but also the awareness of of what this is you know like this is this is your last clean shot there might be more but this is the last one you know you're going to get and i think that's i think that's been a part of blake griffin's urgency defensively i think that's been a part of a lot of Mm -hmm. this yeah i mean i think the blake stuff is I think th- there's definitely elements to that. I also think that it's just kind of natural progression for him. Sure. You know, he's a guy two years ago, for all of Doc Rivers' like, kind of false defensive bravado about people, anointing DeAndre Jordan by far the best player, the defensive player in the league, you know, three years ago, um, when in reality, like, he probably didn't get to that point until, like, well, he's not at that point, but, like, in that conversation, really, for, like, you know, another year and a half later until he mastered some other stuff. You know, I think it was two years ago that, that Doc Rivers said that he thought Blake Griffin could make an all-defensive team. Like, that because of his athleticism or whatever, like, he saw someone who could be a really good defensive player. And I'm not saying that Blake is at playing all-defensive team levels right now. But I do think that when you look at kind of the kind of player Blake Griffin is offensively, you know, he's 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 more than just a big turbo button and, you know, crazy, you know, crazy, a crazy vertical. He's a really smart player. And I think he's always been a, probably a pretty smart defensive player too. He just didn't always show. And he's playing like a smart defensive player right now. It it always gets frustrating when a guy hits his hits, like primes in different elements of the game at different times, but that's kind of the nature of the sport because it takes a long time to learn. And so it's like, yeah, it would have been great if, 22 year old Blake Griffin who was just dunking on everyone's face could be this guy <laughs> defensively but that's not the way this yeah. works I mean for me that guy was Iguodala I, w- I went to college at the same time as Iguodala he was at Arizona and he was killing us and he was a great defensive player then but it was more like that physical beast guy if you could put 31 year old Iguodala's brain in 25 year old Iguodala yeah that would be like one of the best players we've seen in the league in a long time that's not the way this always mm-hmm. works and so with Griffin it's been it's been weird, but also satisfying, I guess is probably a fair word for it, to see him age into something. And that also gets into something I wanted to talk about earlier, but can discuss now is I've really liked during Wes's injury, they've been dabbling a little bit more with basically the normal bench five, except with Blake in Wes Johnson's place instead of Brandon Bass. And I think that's looked pretty good. Yeah, they, they've staggered a little bit more, which was something they wanted to do this year. And I think the bench kind of making that decision for Doc Rivers by playing as well as they did early changed sort of the the, the trajectory on that. And I think we've seen more of that. I, I think, you know, the last two games we've seen Paul Pierce in that position. And he's looked all right. Hit two shots at Sacramento. Missed a terrible, oh my gosh, missed horribly in his first shot uh, against the Bulls. And then slid to the corner and hit a three. 
had I thought in, in the second half like a big like kind of vintage Paul Pierce like get into the lane create some space with your footwork and hang and make like a, a 10 footer you know just little quick little flashes in the game giving them kind of I think what they thought they would get out of him last year uh, at times now I don't think we're gonna see I think you know obviously it feels like that's West Johnson's spot and it should probably still be West Johnson's spot but they've got options when you've got a team that has 12 guys on it that you're really comfortable playing I think it feels like this year Doc Rivers is more willing to kind of to kind of throw those names in a hat and kind of pull them out I mean Danny they finished a game last night with um, DeAndre Jordan on the bench you know where they played Chris Paul JJ Redick Jamal Crawford Blake Griffin and Mo Spates and I don't think that lineup probably played a second together this year before last night it was wild and I mean, and then Hoiberg was doing weird crap too. But it, it was a, it was a strange game. But but yeah, I mean, at a certain point, you get into these weird things. And Spates is not better than DeAndre Jordan in any sense of the imagination. But he does bring something different, and sometimes the something different helps. Yeah. Well, and the same thing. I mean, the same thing goes. You know, with in those situations, like I remember looking around and being like, "Where's Luke and Bamute in this game?" You know, like, don't you want Luke and Bamute out there to guard Jimmy Butler or something like that? And, I'm, and you know, and Jamal Jamal was fine, and, but it was like, no, we need Jamal. Like, it was the sense that that kind of extra shooter and then weird, like, that tremendous cut and stuff like that. I mean, those were plays that won them the game. And, you know, he put he, Doc Rivers pushed the right buttons last night in a way that he hasn't done as much. I mean, he, he is such a, a creature of comfortability. See his general you know the the i mean um decision tree you know what i mean like this is he, he is a creature of comfortability and to see him kind of get outside his box a little bit this year i think has helped them too it has and i don't want to talk about expectations in terms of the playoffs because there's so much that we don't know but where do you see sure. this regular season turning out i mean like in a world where they're healthy i think they're the one or two in the west i had picked them to finish second i mean i think it's clear that they're better than the spurs to me, I, I think that I, I wasn't as high on San Antonio this year as some people. I just kind of thought that maybe this is the year that age kind of catches up to them in the backcourt. But I, I think they're the second best team in the West, you know, assuming that the Warriors kind of, you know, continue to that they're going to be the team that that makes the biggest steps as the season goes on. But I, I feel like some of the things the Clippers are really good at are things the Warriors could struggle with. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's kind of what'll be really interesting. Um, the Clippers are big, um, or they can be. You know, the the weird, the weird lineup that has always been kind of talked about, and like we still have never really seen it, is sort of like the Blake Griffin maybe plays a little bit at three lineup. You know, <laughs> like like this like crazy jumbo lineup that Doc Rivers has talked about. That would be fascinating. That would be a fascinating lineup to try to use against the Warriors. I'd be so interested in that. Yeah, that would be fun. Something that I'm going to see in terms of the regular season. So I'm I'm sure people will focus, and they should, on their early their early December. So they face they go at Cleveland, they host the Warriors, and then they host the Blazers in like a two week span. So that's going to be huge because you're facing good teams. But I'm actually really interested to see how they do for before then for the next kind of week and a half, two weeks. Because yeah, if we're talking about them as a really good regular season one of the most important things that teams can do because realistically you know yeah it's great if you can beat everyone but really if you beat everyone you should beat you'll do well and that's like that's something mm-hmm. that that's kind of a hallmark of of those great regular season teams so you know they're they're facing indiana they're facing detroit but a lot of those games are on the road because they have this four game road trip 
if six they, game six oh yeah six that's right because it goes it continues over the month it goes into December it goes into yeah. December so if they get through that pretty clean then I'm going to start to say the of course you always have to have the if, if healthy caveat with them and with everybody else in the NBA but correct then I'm going to start to buy the okay maybe we're not talking high 50s low 60s maybe we're talking mid 60s like that sort of a thing and that would be great for the league it would be great for the Western Conference it would be great for potentially a playoff series and all that and I'm hopeful that they can do that because they have the talent and they just need to you know have everything work yeah, I'll be really interested to see kind of too. It just when I look at their schedule, and I know I feel like this is a thing like every beat writer does. But like you look at like your schedule and you say like, oh my god, I can't believe like this is what the league is giving them. This is what I have to do. This feels so weird. And I look at their schedule and it's a weird schedule. Like October, November has been weird for them, where they you know playing five or four games a week, virtually every week. I think uh, this week will be the first week of the year they played three games. And they still do it without two days off. You know, I look at, they've got this stretch. Um, let me read you the stretch at the end of January. This is the one I've been dreading from a travel standpoint, where they go Denver, day off, Atlanta, Philly, back-to-back, three days off, at Golden State, three days off again. And then a road home Phoenix Warriors back-to-back, two days off, at Boston, Toronto, back-to-back, at the Knicks, two days off, at Charlotte, day off, at Utah, day off, home to play the Hawks. <laughs> yeah and, and and like oh that's, that's a nasty. weird stretch and then i look at their march and they they've got again they've got five back-to-backs in march which they've had four already in this season like i think they have eight. i think they play the the high i think they've got 18 this year yeah which is like a byproduct i think of you know they're the third tenant at staples center there's a lot of that stuff but i mean like there's like there's some weird weird schedule stuff and then the, in april they play five games in 12 days you know where they have a week where they play two games and so it's just a really quirky schedule in terms of where the rest is coming and i, I like so i look at that january stretch obviously the start of december like this road trip i think if they can go four and two on this road trip which you know on paper they should go at least five and one like to me, they're they're better than every team they're going to play on this trip, except for maybe Cleveland, and they've always struggled in Cleveland. But you know, seeing how they do there, seeing how they do against the Warriors, those types of witnesses. I mean, that the San Antonio win this year to me, and and that was a weird game because San Antonio was coming from Utah, Clippers were coming from Memphis, the second night of a back to back. But that was a game where they trailed in that game eight to nothing, and I think I turned over to. And I was sitting next to Rowan Kavner from Clippers.com, and I'm just like, you know, from years past, like this is over. You know, it was the their fifth game in seven days. You know, you lose that game. Like it was a schedule loss to begin with, and then the Spurs come out and score, I think, eight points on the first three possessions. And it's just like they can't stop them. And I think the Clippers went on a twenty-eight to two run after that. And it yeah, was like, it was, oh, it was, it was an important moment in terms of seeing them as like a legitimate, you know, not only in the regular yeah. season but as the playoffs. It's like, oh yeah, they they took a they took a good team shot and kept on going. Yeah, and they've done that, you know, a couple of times now, and. You know, yeah, the schedule doesn't let up, but I, I don't know. It, the writer in me wants to say, well, neither will they. <laughs> well, so, <laughs> you know, I mean, something, something hacky like that. So one of the things with the Clippers schedule going through it as we've been talking that I think is really fascinating is that they play Denver on March 16th. And then basically there's a month left in the season. They only play games away from Staples Center three times in that last month of the season. And, and none of the like they play the Spurs and then the other two are against the Mavs and the Suns. I don't think either mm-hmm. of those is... I think the Suns is back-to-back, but at that point, I don't think the Suns are going to be a whole, a whole lot of relevant. And so it's like, 
maybe they're just going to kind of like, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, that they're going to kind of be in this comfort zone there. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's a strange schedule. I, I admittedly haven't looked at the other 29 ones, but I think it's, yeah, well, it'll be interesting. I mean, that, that could be crazy valuable rest, too. You know, and that maybe allows them to kind of, you know, attack the season the way to, the way they want to. I know they look at the schedule at the start of the year and kind of plan out some of this stuff. Last night was a game that was very high on their on kind of their their warning list. You know, I think Doc Rivers said that when the schedule came out, like he circled that game and said, "We're going to lose this game." Fourth back to back in three weeks. You know, they got in from Sacramento. I think at like two thirty last night or yesterday morning. I mean, and, and you know, the Bulls have been playing really well. And like you kind of add all those things together, and you know that's going to be a tough game. And then again, down nineteen, like that's bad teams in that situation. You, you just you know you pack it in and you figure out what you're going to do Monday. And they fought and they won, and and you know it was a gutty win, and they they were happy, they were proud after that one. And I think that's a good. They sign. should be. Uh, anything else you think yeah. we should discuss? No, man, I think we're good. I got I have a beat writer laundry to do. Nice um, to get ready for this trip. So. This is how I'm going to be spending my Sunday. I'm staring at loads, loads and loads of dirty clothes, and very domestic Sunday for me. And I'm going to get to write about most Bates today too. So always a good experience, especially if you got some quotes from him. Yes, he was terrific. He always is. Well, mo th- quotes. Thanks so much, and uh, have a great rest of your weekend. Thanks, Danny. Thanks again to Dan Woyke for taking the time. You can read him in the Orange County Register, the LA Daily News, and the rest of the Southern California News Group. You can also follow him on Twitter at Dan Woyke Sports. That's D-A-N-W-O-I-K-E-S-P-O-R-T-S. Love talking with him, and the Clippers are just this looming figure in the league. I mean, people talk a lot about the Warriors and the Cavs, and certainly they're, they're their own thing, but the Clippers are this incredibly talented group of players, and they have more volatility in the short term than a team like the Warriors or a team like the Cavs. And so I find it very exciting. I really liked the last, you know, let's say, 15 minutes of the conversation about really what the implications of this season could be and, of course, everything else. And thank you guys so much for, for listening to this. Guys and girls, you know, we do have a little bit of a, a female audience too, of course. And it's been, a, it's been a fun road. Now we're getting into a different part of the season. It is not all the way done yet, but I'm working on the finishing touches of a kind of, let's call it a new series for Real Jam Radio. So that's going to start in the next couple weeks. I'm not exactly sure if it's going to be in addition to everything else or if it's going to replace some of those episodes. It will depend. And my guess, guess, guess is that that will launch about a week from now, still working on all of the logistics with that, but it should be a lot of fun and get some, get some good guests involved and everything like that. So if you want to support the show, you can reach out, you can subscribe, download every episode, leave a rating, leave a review. Of course, check out this this week's two sponsors, Blue Apron, fantastic food delivery service, Cooking Confidence, everything, everything in that amazing mold. And it is something that I use, something I look forward to every week. BlueApron.com slash RealGM gets you three meals for free, and that includes free shipping. And then Audible. Audible is a fantastic service. You go to www.audible slash try now and you can get a month of a month free trial and a free audiobook. I really enjoy it, not only as a concept, but as an execution. They do a really, really great job there. So you should definitely check out both those, Blue Apron and Audible. 
Also thrilled to be part of the CLNS Radio family. You can use the CLNS Radio app and check out other great podcasts. I actually did Celtics Beat this week with Larry Russell, and we talked about the Celtics a lot, a little bit about the Warriors, and so if you want to check that out, of course, Dunked On is going strong. We just did a two-part 15 and 60 on the Western Conference that we ended up still, even though we split into two, we ended up still making it pretty long, going through a lot of different stuff at this point in the season. Have my own writing material, some new stuff coming out the Sporting News, stuff at The Athletic, of course, working on a few pieces for Real GM. So all of that will be, you know, that's all a part of the whole mix and really do appreciate all the support. And the Twitter NBA show will be back, not this week with Thanksgiving, it'll be back the following week. We haven't yet announced the date, but, you know, it'll be a day where there are national TV games. And of course, you should keep your ear out for that because it's going to be a, a big project for Nate and I and so much fun to do. And you can also, while we love it for people to, to watch it live, you can also check it out after the fact. So if you're a fan of one of the two teams or you just want to hear more from Nate and I, you can do that and basically all that runs through Nate's Periscope, which is periscope.tv slash NBA, same as his Twitter handle. So it's not over yet. This year is not even close. Still have another month of fun basketball and podcasts and everything else like that. But getting around Thanksgiving for me makes me think about everything that's that's happened. And my, let's call it my career, is in, is in a very different, very good place now compared to where it was a year ago, two years ago. And that is based on the support of a lot of great people from Chris Rayner at Real GM to all the support of the Sporting News and The Athletic to readers and listeners. And it is all of those things put together. So on this Thanksgiving week, and this will be the last episode that comes out before that, I wanted to give my deepest heartfelt thanks to everybody who has made this possible and it it is an amazing life. I, I never take it for granted because I've done so many other things and had it as a side gig and will do my best to maximize the opportunity as long as it happens and to give that opportunity to, to everybody else that I can. And that is a second part of this that I really do want to do. And that's why it's great to support people who you know that are doing good work and you know, using, using, trying to make sure that we use the platform for people who will make the most of it as well. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.